Thank you, Gary. Um, if you have your Bibles, if you're here or at home, if you would uh, open to 1 Peter chapter 3, the passage that Gary uh, read for us. Um, we are making our way through 1 Peter, and it's, it's just been a joy. One of the things that, one of the themes of 1 Peter is, is, is how to suffer. Peter talks a lot about suffering, and um, one of the things that is our job as a as pastor, um, I've years and years ago this was impressed upon me, and then uh, recently Gary has has talked about this uh, quite a bit as well. That it's it's our job as a pastor to prepare you for suffering. Um, as as Gary was praying, I was just thinking uh, as he was praying through the prayer list of um, uh, you know a year ago yesterday Neil. Casabom uh, uh, lost his life uh, to cancer, uh, but entered into glory. Uh, our dear sister Ann Hunter and Ina, um, as well, within this year, and, and Ina not as much because I didn't. We didn't see her suffering, but certainly through um, Ann's life and through Neil's life, you know, we saw how God worked in them through His Word on how to suffer physically. First Peter um, is about suffering, and it's about suffering persecution and um, and even martyrdom uh, if if God calls, if that's God's purpose. And so Peter lays out some really great uh, principles for us in his word to understand this. And this is the theme that's going to be uh, carried through today. Now, today. Um, as we look at this text, you could almost divide it up into two sections, uh, verse 18 and then 19 through 22. Uh, but I think it's th- that Peter has an overarching theme here. We'll get to that in a minute with two sub points. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting is verse 8 is easy and glorious. Verses 19 through 22, Martin Luther says they are the uh, most difficult verses in the Bible. Uh, but what I hope you will see as we look and as we dig into them is I hope you will see unfold that the difficulty may be in how all the various parts of these verses play out and what's going on. But that what you will see is that there is definitely a theme and a message that's not obscure that Peter is laying out for his reader. And I think that we can hear that as well. Now, I'm going to give you just a very uh, short uh, lesson on hermeneutics or how you are to read and interpret the Bible. Uh, And it's often said by people who teach uh, hermeneutics that there are three really important keys and concepts um, in interpreting the Bible. And those three important things are context, context, context. That when we read our Bibles and when we're looking at passages that we've got to look at the context. This morning... If we were to read these verses in isolation and not look at the context of these verses, it would give way to, it has given way to wild speculations uh, within the church of things like um, purgatory. You could read verses 19 through 22 and uh, begin to see, oh, okay, I understand maybe where this idea of purgatory comes from. Also, an idea of uh, what's called post mortem conversion or Uh, People being able to be converted, to hear the gospel and be converted after they're dead, uh, being uh, preached to. Um, Also, at the end of uh, these verses, we see uh, 
a phrase in verse 20, 21 corresponding to that. Baptism now saves you. And this is where some people turn to and say, see, look, baptismal regeneration. Without the context, you could, you could lean into that. In, in fact, uh, there's a, a man who used to be an evangelical. Now I believe that he has completely left the faith. His name's Rob Bell and uh, writes things and looks to passages like this to promote doctrines um, like universalism and in what I would call kind of a, a, a neo-purgatory type thing where he says that in the end, love will win. That in the end, you know, uh, that God will reach you even after death and bring you back into His fold. So it's very important this morning that we look at the context and stay in the context. And so I just want to briefly march through the context of the book and then narrowly focus on exactly where we are as we unpack these verses. And so the beginning of this text, we had Peter saying, uh, writing to the folks in Asia Minor, aliens, exiles, sojourners. These are Christians in Asia Minor that are in a, um, are in a society, in a culture that is not their home. They are the minority, and as they are living in that culture, there is low-level persecution, and Peter is expecting, and it will happen, that further persecution will come, and Peter is preparing them for that. More recently in our studies, uh, uh, several weeks ago, we entered into this uh, section in chapter 2. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, Peter is saying, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers... They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so Peter begins to lean in and, and says to them, uh, when they slander you, when they speak evil against you, when they begin to persecute you, live in such a way that they can see your behavior and glorify God. And then Peter marches through different scenarios where Christians are under worldly authorities. And he tells them how they should live under these authorities as Christians and as believers in Christ. And then we get all the way up to um, the past several weeks uh, where Gary preached um, two great sermons. And, and I want to just read these verses because I want these to be echoing in your minds as we jump into our passage. Starting in verse 13 of chapter 3. Notice, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer... So Peter is saying, there's this idea of who can harm you, you will suffer, even if you do suffer. And so there's this dichotomy of uh, in, in the heavenly realm, uh, when it comes to your spiritual uh, life and who you are in Christ, no one can harm you for doing what is good. But even if you should suffer in this world for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For, for it is better, if God should will it, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is evil. So, no doubt, this context is about suffering. And suffering for doing what is right. And suffering for doing what is good. And the goal, 
the goal that Peter is writing is that he's writing so that they may endure. So that they can live under persecution, under suffering, that they would live differently. So that, so that even though hardships may come, that they can be an example, they can be a light, they can be, a, they can be salt to the world around them. And what he is telling us, and what we will see today, that our relationship with Jesus brings about a joy, a peace, a hope, and a strength. That even in the time of hardships, as we are squeezed and as we are pushed, that what lives out of us, how we live in this world, is, is a witness to God's love. That we can be loving. That we can live sacrificially. Now, I want to go ahead and lay out the point of today's sermon. Uh, what I think the point of what Peter is writing in verses 18-22. through 22, um, And then what you see is a main theme and then two points, that, two main movements that he uses to support that. And, and here's the main theme. That the triumph or the victory of Jesus over all things, the triumph and victory of Jesus over all things, helps us or enables us to endure suffering. It strengthens us so that we can look to Jesus and gain strength. And Peter, as he's writing this, he gives us two main movements. The first thing that we're going to look at is that Jesus triumphs over our sin. And so we're going to see how Jesus triumph over our sin helps us to endure suffering. The second thing that we're going to see is, is summarized in verse 22 of this section. And look at the triumph of Jesus here. Who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to Him. So that Christ, in His resurrection, has the power over all things. Angels, forces, powers, authorities. And I want to stop just a minute as we, before we go into this and just ask this question. Because Peter is saying, if you suffer for doing what is good... Verse 17, it's better if, you, if God's will that you suffer for doing what is good rather than doing what is wrong. This whole idea, if we think about this for a moment, is that Peter knows that the question on the minds of these believers could be, man, you know, we're trying to do what's right and we're suffering. Oh, is this suffering in vain? It just doesn't get us anywhere in this society. There are no wins here. And what Peter is telling them is this. Look to Christ. Look to Christ and you will see that suffering for what is good is not in vain. If this world was all there was, that suffering would be in vain. But if we look to Christ, we see that this world is not all that there is. So let's dig into the text uh, and let's, uh, let's look at this first point. Now, I, I want to make a note here. Um, a lot of people would read verse 17 and 18 and look at these verses and say, okay, what Peter is telling us is to mimic Christ. And certainly in our text, um, there are various places. Peter is telling us, as Gary said, to trace Christ. But I want to be careful here because I think people have stumbled into this and not realized that Peter here is, is doing something different. So it says it's better if you do good, if God should will, that you suffer for doing good than evil. And then in verse 18, 4... Christ also died for sins once for all. Now, there's the temptation to say, oh, okay, 
like, here's how we suffer for doing what's good. Let's trace Christ here, as we've seen in other passages. But what I want you to see very clearly is that Peter is doing something else. How many of us, how many of us can suffer and die for other people's sins and that be the atonement for them? The answer is zero. The next movement of the text. How many of you can go to the prison and make a proclamation to spirits and then have dominion over them? Zero. So there's something different going on here. The difference that's going on here is what Peter is saying is that the way that you can suffer for doing good is based upon the work of Christ. That's why it says for Christ. So this isn't a mimicry text. This is a text to look to Christ to strengthen us uh, to do what we're supposed to do, to suffer well. And I just love these verses. And I hope, I hope that this verse, verse 18, this morning just fills your heart with joy and gladness. And this verse is really easy. And uh, it's one of these verses that's laid out um, uh, statement by statement, clause by clause, and to this big crescendo that's just awesome. And so let's just walk through it, because I don't want to miss any of it. For Christ also died for sins. And so the first thing we see is that Christ died for sins. Some translations say that Christ suffered for sins. And the question that we have to ask is, who sins? We know that Christ didn't die for His sins, no matter what uh, a news anchor might tell you. Christ didn't die for His sins. Christ died for your sins and my sins. He who knew no sin became sin. He came and He suffered for us on the cross. It was my sin, my punishment, my debt that He was paying. We know from our studies in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Christ died for sins. Notice the second uh, phrase here. He died for sins once and for all. The idea here would be to bring to mind the sacrificial system of the Old Testament where sins had to constantly be atoned for. That, that there had to constantly be sacrifices. And Christ died once and for all for sins. There was no need for the sacrificial system. That Christ was the perfect Lamb, the Son of God, the complete innocent. That when He died, it was done and it was finished and our sins are paid for. And we see from a phrase like this, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. This is one of the reasons why as uh, the reformers, um, uh, Martin Luther uh, and the guys, uh, one of the reasons why they rejected the idea of, of mass was based upon this, the sufficiency of Christ. Christ doesn't need to be re-sacrificed. His death, burial, and resurrection was once and for all. This is the reason why uh, Christians don't wear crosses with Christ on them. A crucifix is because we believe in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ was sufficient for all. We're not looking to re-crucify Christ. Third thing. This is huge. Christ died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. The idea here is that Christ became our substitute. He bore my wrath. He bore my punishment. He bore my shame. And I get His righteousness. I get His, 
I, I become cleansed. I am forgiven. In my place condemned, He stood. He took on my shame and punishment. And why did He do all this? And here's the main clause. And this is just mind-boggling. And this is just incredible. Why did He do all this? So that He might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. That He might bring us to God. Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Do you marvel and worship at the fact as we sang today, we sang so many times today in these songs, that we, are, we have been brought to God through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Yet not I, but Christ in me. I think here as, as uh, I look at this idea of being brought to God, of, as you know, in the Old Testament, in the temple, there was a big thick curtain that was put up that was meant to separate. The whole idea of the temple were layers of separation between man and, and God. And so the idea there was of separation. And this was the symbolism in Luke when Jesus utters, it is finished and breathes his last breath. And the curtain was what? It was torn in two so that man, symbolizing that man, you and I now have access to God because of the blood of Christ, that we have been reconciled to God. Now, when we think about this word reconciliation, this is a word that's thrown a lot in our day and age. And when we talk about reconciliation, a lot of times what we mean, if, if I were to bring two of you together and say, hey, let's have reconciliation, what would come to mind is, okay, well, I'm going to give a little bit. He or she's going to give a little bit. We're going to say where we were wrong and hopefully reconcile the relationship. But when it comes to God, that's not what happens. God doesn't have to give. He hasn't sinned. He is the perfect and the holy. We are the ones that need to be reconciled. And praise be to God because, of God, because of Jesus Christ, God has reconciled us to Himself by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now, now, once an enemy, now seated at His table, we are a child of God. We are loved by God. And we have a purpose. So when we think about suffering as his child and as his loved one, one of the things that I think that these verses should bring to mind is that you're not, separate, you're not suffering because you're separated. Our suffering is because of our relationship. And two things should come in mind. One perspective uh, from the beginning of First Peter that says we have an inheritance that is being kept for us. And so that while we suffer in this world, we look at that reconciliation we look that we have been brought to God and we know that this world is not our home and that we have a treasure in heaven that is beyond imagination. We also know that because we are one of God's children, we see things more clearly than we did before and we realize that while we're in this world that we have a purpose and that we have a mission. And I think, as I think about this sort of thing, I think a lot about stories that my grandparents told me um, about the world wars and about what life was like during the, 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 the world wars and that all the sacrifice that happened in those days. Not only the soldiers, the, the, the men that fought and the women that went and uh, were, were nurses and aided in that. But also, um, you know, that people here gave up a lot of, of money and comforts in order to support the war. 
Because there was a bigger picture, there was a bigger goal. And as Christians, as children of God, we are to see the bigger picture and the bigger goal. And so suffering, as it comes to our mind, all of a sudden suffering makes sense. And it becomes who we are as children of God because we're supporting a movement that is way bigger than ourselves. So that as we look to Christ in the midst of suffering, we see that we have been brought near to God and this aids us in our suffering and encourages us in our suffering and that we see that the suffering is not in vain and that it is producing something. It's no coincidence, brothers and sisters, that some of the greatest um, uh, missionary movements in the world has come through suffering. From the very beginning in the book of Acts, persecution came, people scattered, and the gospel went with it. Uh, Today, all across Asia and um, in places like Iraq, you see the gospel flourishing amidst persecution. That God has a plan for suffering. What we see, what we see in these verses is that Christ is being set forth as an example to suffering. To suffering Christians as one who has gone before them and walked the path from suffering to glory. Christ is not just put forth as an example, but His role in securing our hope and faith is put forward as a means, as a means in which the readers of this book should draw encouragement during times of trial and difficulty. So that's the first way that we are to look to Christ as the triumph. He triumphed over sin. Now Peter moves um, to his second point, And this is where all the controversy begins to boil up. Um, but I think what is really crystal clear about this passage, and I think what you will see is easy to, to, to see, is that the main point of this section is that Christ's victory over sin, Christ's victory over sin, And Christ's victory over angels and powers and authorities gives us courage in the midst of suffering because as we're united in Him, we know that in His victory, being in Him, that those things have no power over us either. Again, hear verse 22, and here's where we are driving towards. Here's what Peter is driving us towards. Who is at the right... Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. In chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, just a few, uh, uh, Peter just writes just a few, just a little bit later. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And and I love everybody who preaches on this passage, and I don't know where it came from. I tried to find where this phrase came from. But they'll say that Satan is a lion on a leash. And as Christians, that's how we navigate this world with the awareness of Satan, with the awareness of demonic forces, but knowing that they have no power against you. You have the power to resist because Christ, Christ has conquered and is victorious over them. So that's where we're moving Now, I want to read a a quote, uh, a dear brother in this church, as he knew I was preaching on this, uh, sent uh, sent an excerpt from a book, and it was great, and it was very helpful uh, by a man named R.T. France, and I just want to read a a little bit of a lengthy quote, but I want you to hear this because it's so good, and I can't say it any better. 
The emphasis in these verses is on the triumph of Jesus over all opposing powers. The triumph began in His redeeming death, was established through His resurrection, and is now effective through His ascension and sitting at God's right hand. Verse 18 is the beginning of this recital and its relevance to the context uh, that is, is that the persecuted Christian facing powers of evil may know that these powers are already defeated. That he shares in the triumph of his master to whom all powers are subject. The apparent defeat of death was for Jesus the beginning of victory. So it is for the Christian martyr. Death leads to resurrection and triumph because Jesus through His redeeming death, has once for all conquered sin and all the powers of evil. Now, every part of these next two verses are debated. Every part. And there are various interpretations, and some of these other interpretations I find very, very, very plausible. Okay, and I want to just say that at the outset. Now, for the sake of time this morning... I want to just lean in and go and tell you, hey, here's what I think is uh, is being said here, and I will explain why. Um, but this not this is not a, a time of in depth um, on this. But there are three basic questions that have to be answered in interpreting this text. Let me read the text and then read the three questions. You'll you'll understand why it's so difficult. So talking about Jesus, so that having been put to death in the flesh and been made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now this is odd. Now what we know is that Peter, in preaching this, Peter doesn't just throw out just just random thing to try to confuse his audience. So Peter's original audience, and this is very important, would have understood why Peter was using this as an example to Christ's triumph over spirits and powers. But there are three questions that we have to answer to understand what this passage is saying. The first question that we have to ask is, where did Jesus go? Where did Jesus go? Many people have looked at this and I think wrongly said that Jesus went to hell. Where did he go? Did he go to hell? Who are the spirits? Are these like people who died, and they're, but they're people in hell or in some kind of place? Are these angels? Are these disembodied souls? Who are the spirits? And what did Christ say to them? Now you may say, well, Lewis, it doesn't tell us. Right. But some people put forth the idea that what Christ did is that He went and preached the gospel. And that some of these people were given a second chance or were saved in this time period. Now, I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to walk through this. And I think I'm, I'm convinced of my position, although there are, there are some other positions that I, uh, uh, that, that I give leniency to. But So as we look at verse 19, starting in verse 19, uh, I want to take the first phrase and I want us to notice two things. In which also he went and made proclamation. So, the first thing we see is that it tells us that Jesus went somewhere. A very plausible explanation that I don't adhere to, uh, but that is in evangelical circles, is that uh, what is going on here was that Jesus 
uh, through the Spirit, was preaching through Noah to the people of his day and preaching a message of repentance. The reason that I, I don't find that a favorable position is that I think that it says here that Jesus went. Now, there are problems with my position too. So I, 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 I'm not too firm. But, so Jesus went. The second thing that we see is that He proclaimed. Now, this word in the Greek for proclaim is not the word that is used when we say preach the gospel. That is a different word that is used over and over in the Greek to proclaim the gospel or preach the gospel. Now, this word can be used for that, but it can also be used to just to make a proclamation, to, to declare something. And I think that's how this word is being used. And you're going to see this unfold. So Jesus went somewhere and he proclaimed something. The next word that I want to, the, the next phrase here is he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Now, this word, again, in the New Testament spirit, is never used, except maybe one time in the book of Hebrews, to talk about actual people. Every time this word in the Greek text is used, except for maybe that one time, it's used to talk about uh, angels. And so I think all of a sudden this, this picture, as we look at this, is, is coming into context. Now, Lastly here, before we jump into some other text, uh, he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Again, some interpreters look at this word prison and jump to hell. And uh, this word is not the word that is associated. There's a grouping of words that can be associated uh, with or translated hell. And this is not one of the ones that is normally translated that way. So now you may be swimming a little bit and say, Lewis, what in the world are you talking about and what is going on? So, hang with me for just a little bit longer. There are a couple things that are really important, I think, in interpreting this text and something just beautiful, I think, emerges out of this. So I think that Jesus went um, to a prison and He proclaimed something to uh, uh, fallen angels and we... In our text, we're also given in the day of Noah. And so what I want to walk back and show you is just a couple of things. First is in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 6. Right before the flood story, and the, the, uh, as we're leading up to the flood account in Genesis, uh, the first six verses in Genesis chapter 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The Lord says, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh, and nevertheless his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. And then we get the flood story with Noah. And so what we see here is that there are these, there are these strange references in the book of Genesis to these angelic beings sinning and falling. And it's interesting that as Peter picks this up, he references Noah, and he references spirits, it's all of a sudden something starts to come together. Now, in Second Peter... Uh, who I, in this book I believe was also written by 
Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Listen, listen again. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, that he brought a flood upon the earth of the ungodly. Again, we get this reference to Noah and these spirits, these um, angels, uh, fallen and in some kind of prison. Again, in Jude uh, chapter 6. Or verse 6, there's, no chap- there's just one chapter in the book of Jude, verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their own domain, but a man- abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then in Revelation chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20, it says that Satan was what? Bound and put in prison, and then he was released. All this kind of points to this idea that is difficult and we don't understand and makes our heads spin and twirl a little bit that there is a place where fallen angels, where uh, uh, powers of demonic are imprisoned. And what I believe that is being said here is that Jesus went and proclaimed something to them. Now, before I go there, I'm getting ahead of myself. There's also a background that you need to know. There's a background that you need to know. That, I th- that the original audience would have known. And so I'm going to... One, one piece of Bible trivia. Where is it that we think that Noah's Ark might reside? Turkey, right? Modern day, what used to be Asia Minor. What we know, what we know is that the flood narrative in Asia Minor was a big deal. There are at least four, um, four various flood story accounts that arose. And so, the, 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 and, and I think that it was known what happened because the ark did settle somewhere. And so this audience in Asia Minor, that the, the flood and the ark was a big deal to their community. Now, this is also very interesting. There have been coins that have been found in archaeological surveys um, from about 150 A.D. to 250 A.D. that on one side of the coin are, is a depiction of Noah and his wife, and on the other side of the coin is a Roman emperor. Interesting. Again, just gives voice to this idea that this was a known cultural phenomenon. And here is the other point that's, that has to be known. Uh, along with the flood narrative... Um, uh, there was uh, another myth, uh, you know, there are books that we have found uh, that we call apocryphal. They're not, and I want to be clear here, we do not view them as canon. We do not view them as uh, books of the Bible. Um, but there are books that are written that give some interesting commentary on things. And one of the books that, uh, was, uh, that has been around for a really long time uh, was called the Book of First Enoch. You remember who Enoch was? Enoch walked with God and then God took him. And in the book of Enoch, uh, one of the prevalent stories that is repeated a couple of times is that Enoch, as he was taken by God, went to these spirits that were in prison from the days of Noah and proclaimed judgment on them. That is one of the stories that's associated with the flood narrative in the book of Enoch. Now, What I'm not saying, 
is that that gives validity to the book of Enoch. Here is what I'm saying. Do you remember what Paul did at Mars Hill? That he stood up and he said, I see you have a statue to an unknown God. And then he lays out. So this cultural phenomenon, this unknown God, and then he lays into Jesus Christ. I think what Peter is doing is he's taking this narrative that was well known, that was a cultural phenomenon. He's taking this myth of Enoch preaching to these spirits in prison and what he is driving home and saying, you think Enoch was a big deal. Christ has defeated every demonic power. And what he proclaimed was not judgment. What he proclaimed was victory over them. His death, his burial, and his resurrection proclaims victory over every demonic power. And please, please, Please get this. Because this next movement is so special. Not only did Christ claim victory over them, but He is saying, you who are in Christ, you may be suffering now, but yours is this victory as well. Because you're in Christ, they have no power over you. Let's continue in, this, in, in these verses, in verse 20, and you'll see this and get this. So, so then, Peter in verse uh, twenty. Uh, 20 says who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. Now what was happening as Noah was building this ark and as Noah was proclaiming God's judgment and that God was going to judge all there was a mighty revival right? They laughed at him. They scoffed at him. In fact it says that only eight people were spared. Think about Peter using this narrative and telling this to this to these Christians who felt small in number. And brothers and sisters, if you talk to someone who has gone through persecution or suffering, the world gets really small really quickly. And Peter, as he is encouraging these Christians to suffer and telling them of their victory in Christ, when the whole world seems against you, know that God loves you and cares for you, even if you are small in number, that God does and will rescue you. You too are saved from this evil generation. They have no power over you. This is just beautiful. Notice that it says that they were brought safely through the water. So that the judgment of the water was there, pronouncing judgment in the boat. They were brought safely through the water. And then Peter says this, corresponding to that, So using this narrative, using something they would have known, he says, baptism now saves you. And you're like, whoa, wait a minute, Lewis. What in the world is going on here? And I think it's very clear that Peter's not saying uh, uh, that that you can be uh, saved just by baptism. And I I made this reference earlier, and I probably shouldn't have. I know I've made it before. It's it's a very philosophical, um, theological uh, picture. Uh, If you've seen the movie uh, Nacho Libre, Laughing. Goodness. Very, very good picture. So, Nacho Libre is this wrestler. He's a, he's a, um, he's a monk in a monastery and he's, he's going out and wrestling trying to uh, raise money for the kids. Uh, and uh, his wrestling partner says he believes in science. Do you remember this part of the movie? He doesn't believe... He, doesn't, he, he said, have you been baptized? And he said, I believe in science. And so, as a good Catholic, what he does is he sneaks up behind him and boom, he baptizes him before before he knows what hits him. And it makes him feel better. Just in case he dies in the ring, 
He's okay. Baptismal regeneration. That's not what Peter is laying out here. Peter corrects, or Peter safeguards himself against the theology of Nacho Libre. And, and notice, notice what happens here. And you'll see again, the main point that Peter is driving comes home. He says, just like Noah, you're saved through water and you have victory in Christ over uh, the culture and the things around it. And notice, baptism now saves you. The first thing you see, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. So it's not the act of baptism. When you go down and come up, it's not the removal of dirt from the flesh. That is not what saves you. But an appeal to God for a good conscience. And this word, this idea here of appeal to God is, is thought to be um, during this day and age. And this is why we do it here. That when we baptize someone, notice we ask questions and uh, essentially somebody is giving a pledge. They are answering questions. And this was common practice in the New Testament church. Um, as Cleve, one uh, commentator puts it, the pledge is thought to be the examination which was necessary prior to baptism. It was a pronouncement of a candidate's resolve to put off the old life and to begin a new life in Christ and was usually conducted in a question-answer form. Those answers would articulate very clearly and exactly what they were professing. Peter reminds them of this since that faith would be put to test in the persecution. So what we see is that they're not saved by the removal of dirt, but an appeal to God the pledge, you know, what, what we have people here, you know, we'll ask the question before we baptize somebody. Do you profess with your mouth that uh, Jesus is Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? That's a proclamation of faith in the gospel. And notice, notice, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through, this is the key phrase, through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So, like Noah, who trusted God, put his faith and tr trust and hope in God and built the ark. We are also saved through water. We're buried. We're immersed. That baptism was by immersion during this time. We are put down in the water, symbolizing death, brought up, symbolizing our connection with Christ in his resurrection, in his resurrection and we are with Christ, we are united in Christ, and therefore the victory that He has, we also share. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful idea here. What encouragement to those who are suffering. suffering. What, a, what an encouragement this passage is to those who are getting ready to and experiencing some level of persecution. And so the main point of this text, again, is to remind us that when you are going through suffering, when you're going through persecution, that you are to look to Christ. And when we look to Christ, we see in Him this wonderful, magnificent Savior who saved us from all of our sins and who brought us to God. Therefore, our current situation has a purpose and a plan. And, and we have an inheritance that is undefiled and being kept for us in heaven. What a beautiful picture. And He doesn't leave us there. He also encourages us that when you are going through suffering and when you are going through persecution, to know that you are more than a conqueror if you are in Christ Jesus because Christ has conquered every demonic, evil, 
force and power and has victory over that. And you too share in that victory, even if for a little while you experience trials of various kind. So brother and sister, when we are struggling, this is, this is where we get practical for just two seconds here. When we are struggling, I want to encourage you to look to Christ. I want to encourage you to the messages that in your suffering, in your persecution, that may take you to bad theological points of I'm alone, God's abandoned me, God doesn't care for me, maybe I'm suffering because of my sin, all of this sort of thing. Look to God, look to Christ and realize who He is. Or if you feel like the waves are going to overtake you, the waves of the persecution, the waves that are coming are going to overtake you, know to look to God, look to Christ, and look what He has done for you, what He has bought and brought you to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank You for this text. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus, in whom we have life. Not only eternal life, but we have current, abundant life because we know that we have been brought to God and that His Spirit is alive in us, encouraging us and taking texts like this and applying it to our doubts and our frustrations and our fears. God, help us to know that the enemy Satan has been defeated even though for a short time he can tempt, he can try to cause despair, your son's victory over Satan has put the death nail in his coffin and that he is a lion on a leash. And none of his lackeys or demonic powers can overcome us. God, help us to relish in this. Help us to live as more than conquerors. It's only possible through your son Jesus' name. Amen. Our benediction is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.